0: It's Wednesday, October 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. How did the coronavirus infiltrate the White House? Many experts say that the reliance on coronavirus rapid response test without other mitigation strategies like wearing masks and social distancing might have been the problem. The White House was using Abbott Laboratories' ID Now tests like metal detectors, despite them delivering false negatives 9% of the time. Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, the FDA has put out guidelines on the protocols to follow before a vaccine can get emergency use authorization. They want an expert panel to review any vaccine and also want two months of safety data. This will definitely put any vaccine out of reach before the election. The White House has also agreed to these guidelines. Angelica Levito, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how a vaccine will be properly vetted. Finally, the spooky season is here and Halloween is on a Saturday, meaning that in a normal year, you would see parties and a lot of trick-or-treaters. But this is not a normal year, and many parents are wondering if they want to risk sending out their kids at all. Rudri Patel, contributor to The Washington Post, spoke to the experts and shares her advice on how to assess the risk of trick-or-treating. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Loads of people sitting very closely together for long periods of time with no masks, most of them. In fact, when they went inside, they were encouraged to take off their masks. Joining us now is Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about how the president might have gotten Coronavirus, COVID 19. Obviously, we don't know. It's hard to say, but a lot of people keep pointing to this event uh, a couple Saturdays ago now where he basically um, brought out Judge Amy Coney Barrett to like nominate her and say, this is going to be our next new Supreme Court justice. A lot of people are saying that that was a big super spreader event. And we don't, like I said, we don't know exactly, but it kind of has all the ingredients of that. But one of the problems uh, seems to be that the administration was relying on rapid testing. To help prevent the spread, there at the White House, and instead for uh, you know not doing the other stuff that you should be doing, wearing a mask, social distancing, avoiding these large gatherings, which is exactly what they had that one day. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about the testing protocols that the White House was doing because this might be the thing that tripped them up.
1: So we know that um, the White House used the Abbott Laboratories ID Now Rapid test that day. Once guests got a negative test, they were taken to the Rose Garden, where a lot of people weren't wearing masks. So basically, they used it as a one-time screener. But public health experts I spoke to say that that really isn't how it's meant to be used. Regardless of the type of test, whether you're talking about this rapid test or a lab-based test, any strategy that relies solely on testing is going to have holes in it, because no test is perfect.
0: One of the public health experts that you spoke to uh, had a very good analogy. They said they were using it like a metal detector, screening just at the front door, and once you got your results, boom, you were in. And as you mentioned, that's not really the way it works. It needs to be in conjunction with all of that other stuff. And these rapid response tests especially, they can produce some false negatives at a higher rate than the lab tests.
1: Yes, you're right. You know, These kinds of tests trade speed in for accuracy, Like I said, they're not meant to be one-time screeners. And, you know, some studies have shown that this Abbott ID Now test has around a 91% sensitivity, which means it can miss about 9% of infected cases. And one of the experts I spoke to, Ashish Jha at uh, Brown University, made this really good comparison that that was like having a metal detector that missed 10% of weapons. And, you know, you'd never allow that if you were protecting the president.
0: Have you gotten any response back from Abbott Laboratories uh, as far as their testing product or even with regards to this case that happened at the uh, Rose Garden?
1: So we did reach out to Abbott to see what they had to say. And uh, they basically said, no test detects the virus immediately after the person becomes infected. They said the goal should be to test often if that's not possible, to test if you can expose your symptoms. And, you know, they actually brought up a really good point. Dr. Jha actually... And, and many other healthcare and uh, public health experts have been advocating for something called surveillance testing, where you test the population a few times a week using these rapid tests. But since they do have a higher rate of false negatives, you know, the idea here is that if the test misses the virus on one day, it'll be more likely to catch it on another day. So it's actually very important in controlling the spread of COVID-19. We're not trying to say that rapid tests are bad. When used correctly, they're great.
0: But it's not the only thing that you should be doing. And I think that's the big point. There was maybe this false sense of security at the White House, maybe some complacency in just using these tests. And that might have been what tripped them up. You know, we keep going back to this Rose Garden as being this possible super spreader event only because so many people have come down with positive test results for COVID-19 that attended this, people that were in the president's close circle. And these super spreader events are worrisome because they lead to other infections down the road. Other White House journalists have gotten this. Trump's body man, his campaign manager, the press secretary has gotten all of this stuff. Um, You had a very specific example in your article about the Notre Dame president, Reverend Jenkins, and his experience when he arrived at the White House for that event. Can you tell us that story?
1: So, um, Reverend Jenkins, when he arrived at the White House that day, he was taken to a room where he was tested using a nasal swab. Then he was taken to another room with a few other people to await results. Everyone in that room was wearing a mask, but when his test came back negative, he was taken to the Rose Garden and told he no longer had to wear a mask. You know, on Friday, the school then said he tested positive for the virus. And that kind of highlights the need for this sort of layered approach when it comes to COVID-19 prevention. These tests aren't perfect. You really need more than just the tests. You need masks, you need social distancing, You need to not pack people together in one space. But that's not what the White House did on September 26th. They used a test to screen people one time for this event. And, you know, multiple public health experts we spoke to said that was
0: just inappropriate. Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. No corners are going to be cut. The FDA is not going to put their stamp of approval on any vaccine that doesn't work. Joining
0: us now is Angelica Levito, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Angelica. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about vaccines and the FDA. We're all waiting for uh, the vaccine candidates to put out information saying, you know, whether they're. Uh, safe and effective and all that. But then after that comes the approval process. The FDA has to approve those and and get that ready. We've heard about the timetables for all of this. The president wants something done before Election Day. Uh, It really seems like it might be a little bit after that. Um, But we're getting some guidance from the FDA on what they want to do, uh, what kind of uh, uh, protocol they want to go through. And they want at least two months of safety data before they approve anything. Uh, So, Angelica, tell us a little bit about what kind of goals the FDA is setting.
2: Right. So, it's a really good question. And to be clear, at first, the FDA has signaled that it will use its emergency use authorization powers, which basically means that while it won't approve a vaccine, it will allow it to be used in this emergency use. Obviously, we're in a pandemic, um, so the regulations are a little bit different there. But in order to do that, what they're saying is they want to see two months following the end of the trial to see how everybody's doing before they make a decision. And that's important because we're hearing that even if we get um, some of the initial results in October, obviously, then you have to wait another few months, which could really push back the timeline faster than what some of the federal officials have been promising.
0: We have four vaccine candidates right now in late-stage trials. We have Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, um, obviously all in kind of different stages. I think AstraZeneca's trial is still on hold right now. Um, So really, who are we looking at to have something done, you know, at the earliest possible?
2: Correct. So AstraZeneca's trial is still on hold. We're expecting results from Pfizer and Moderna sometime this fall.
0: And that's the first reporting, though, right? After that, we would still need two months of data after that? I'm just trying to get the timetable down right.
2: Yeah, and that's what the FDA is signaling they want, is two months of data that will give them time to make sure that none of the uh, trial participants are having any adverse effects. And that way, they can review all of the data, including how people did during the trial and then after the trial.
0: Angelica, talk to me a little bit about public trust in vaccines, because that's so important right now. We're already getting a lot of polls that are saying people don't want to even take the first-generation vaccine. So even as fast as these companies can push out these vaccines, a lot of people are saying, well, I kind of want to wait till the second round, or a bunch of people have taken it, and, and, and I see that it's safe. Um, so uh, rushing all of this stuff, it doesn't really seem like it's going to do anything one way or the other.
2: And that's the purpose of FDA saying we want Two months of data once the trial is complete and then also they're convening this advisory committee and it's pretty typical whenever there is a vaccine candidate or FDA has this um, advisory meeting. Um, for all kinds of different approvals that it goes through, but there was concern that maybe they wouldn't enlist their committee here and sort of move quickly, but now what happens is that. In order for the committee to meet all of the materials that they're reviewing the data everything must be made public that will ideally give the public a window into what the safety data looks like and then of course the recommendation from these outside experts who have no connection to the fda they're really independent and their job is to give their unbiased advice to the fda so that should hopefully help people as they make their determinations. But of course, it's really up to the FDA to say, here's what we know and here's what we
3: don't know.
0: What are we hearing from the drug companies themselves that are making these vaccine candidates? As you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna might be kind of first on the block to to have their data ready and available. Uh, how are they figuring into this whole discussion?
2: They're all saying that they'll abide by the regulations that the FDA sets out and that they are committed to following all the rules. And of course, earlier this fall, they had published that letter saying that they're committed to the science and promise they will not rush a vaccine. So they say that they're ready to commit to all of those guidelines.
0: Well, we're still some time away before we really get uh, some more concrete information on this. I know the president wants to get it as soon as possible. He even said it uh, after being discharged from Walter Reed. He said that vaccines coming in moments, I think he mentioned. So we'll see how how true that actually is. But you know, there's a lot of competing interests here. And I think the chief interest among all of them is, is safety for the American people and making sure that these vaccines really do work and help stop the spread of the coronavirus. So we'll see on all of that. Angelica Levito, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
3: In some ways, the the pandemic lends its way toward costumes. So the first obvious one would be have your kids wear a face mask. And for younger kids, some of the costumes, you can easily incorporate um, a mask into the actual headgear. Joining us
0: now is Rudri Patel, contributor to The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Rudri. Thanks for having me. Like so many others, Halloween is my favorite Holiday of the year, really. And this year, because of the pandemic, it's going to take on a new look. People are skeptical of going out to events, trick or treating. One of the hallmarks, really, of Halloween is up in the air. A lot of local counties are kind of offering guidance. The CDC has offered guidance on whether kids should go trick or treating. They've labeled it high risk just because you're going to various houses, you could be touching a lot of surfaces and interacting with a lot of people. So a lot of parents are skeptical. They don't know what to do, if they should go trick-or-treating with their kids or not. Rudra, you spoke to a bunch of different people, pediatricians and other experts, on kind of their guidance and what they think how people should approach this. So what should parents be thinking about trick-or-treating?
3: Well, although the CDC has labeled it high risk, the experts that I spoke with specifically said that you have to look at your own environment and what's going on in your neighborhood and actually, the CDC has a really helpful color-coded map where uh, parents can actually click on their county and look at what the risk level is. And um, those counties that fall below between five and ten percent are considered low risk for infection. And so, I the experts I talked to said to use that as a guideline, and also. Um, to look at your own personal risks. Obviously, if you have um, a child that's immunocompromised or if you're an adult who has some of the underlying conditions that have been mentioned, um, such as diabetes or heart disease or chronic lung issues, then um, perhaps it might be a good idea to hold back and not go trick-or-treating. But um, for most, if you can Um, look at the community risk and assess your personal risk. Uh, Trick or treating can be safe and uh, still an enjoyable activity.
0: I didn't really think of it before I read your article, but that is a great place to start. The CDC's COVID-19 data tracker because it's still breaking things down by zip code, which is obviously a larger geographical area than just your immediate neighborhood. But it's a good place to start there. If there's a lot of infections nearby you, you might want to consider some other alternatives. If it's not, then you might be a little freer to go out and do some of that stuff so that is a really good spot to start in you know you mentioned in the article too this halloween had all the components of being really great it's on a saturday there's going to be a full moon for extra spookiness you know it is going to be it was to be a good time this year so let's say you decide you are going to take your kids out and you are going to be trick-or-treating what are some of the precautions you can take i'm sure hand sanitizer figures heavily into that
3: Yeah, I think um, in some ways, the the pandemic lends its way toward costumes. So the first obvious one would be have your kids wear a face mask. And for younger kids, some of the costumes, you can easily incorporate um, a mask into the actual headgear. Despite the age of your children, uh, experts recommend that you accompany your children so you can manage social distancing guidelines by having them stand uh, six feet apart and also making sure that they keep their mask on. The big thing that parents should really pay attention to is to avoid congregating outside of doorsteps and porches. So, you know, you want to avoid rooting through a candy bowl. If you see a big crowd, maybe you walk in a different direction. Uh, If you're really concerned, uh, you know, use the hand sanitizer after each house. And some kids will be tempted to eat candy while they're trick-or-treating, but parents should make certain hands are clean before kids start touching their faces and eating candy. And um, as soon as the kids get home, have them shower, wash their hands. And if you're concerned about the candy wrappers, there's no need to disinfect. But as an extra precaution, if you want to store away that candy and buy your own fresh candy to give to your kids, That's also an option.
0: One of the tips that I saw in your article, too, that I thought was really good for those that are handing out candy, instead of maybe doing it at your doorstep, maybe do it in a more spread out area. So like the driveway or just on the lawn or something. That way you limit the amount of things that people are touching.
3: So the key here is really utilizing open spaces. So like you said, driveways, sidewalks. You could even, if you feel comfortable, use your backyard as space because there's more room back there. And um, another thing you can do is um, if you have limited space, then you can set up a table and individually wrap candy. And so that limits contact between the adult handing out the candy and the child.
0: And finally, uh, some alternatives. They're the CDC labeled a bunch of different activities as high risk, kind of like those trunk or treats that you hear of parties that are indoors and haunted houses, they said are pretty high risk as well. What are some of the other lower risk things that kids can do?
3: So, you know, you can always carve and display pumpkins. Um, a lot of parents are doing a Halloween scavenger hunt in their backyard. Zoom is something that everybody's doing. So you could hold a virtual costume contest. A lot of people are using their homes to decorate each room with a different theme. And if you have younger kids, that might be fun to have them visit each room for a different surprise. Other people are getting super creative, creating candy shoots to uh, deliver um, candy to kids uh, without any risk. So I think you can take this as a lesson in creativity for Halloween.
0: Definitely. We want everybody to have fun, but also be safe. And then again, you know, once a holiday, something like this comes up, everybody's on the watch for the next two weeks. Let's see how many cases might have come out of it. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Rudri Patel, contributor to The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.